You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, the podcast that explores the power of inclusion and why disability is an important part of the workplace diversity and inclusion conversation. Produced by the Ontario Disability Employment Network, with your hosts, Jeanette Campbell and Dean Askin. Hello there and welcome. This episode, we're getting innovative, so to speak. If you're listening to this in North America, Australia, or the UK, you've probably heard of curb cuts, those low indentations cut into sidewalks at street corners. They were originally designed for wheelchair users to help them navigate city streets more easily. They first appeared in the US in Kalamazoo, Michigan in the 1940s. And let's go techie with innovation for a minute here. Have you ever heard of an app called Streetco? It was developed in France. It's a pedestrian GPS app for people with reduced mobility. It actually helps users navigate city streets by alerting them to obstacles in real time. And it tells them about the accessibility of nearby places. And Jeanette, over in Kenya, there's Africa's first assistive technology accelerator project. It's called Innovate Now. It helps AT entrepreneurs and startups develop, launch, and market new assistive technologies, including testing them with the disability community. And did you know there's an official World Health Organization collaborating center on assistive technology? The London, UK-based Global Disability Innovation Hub became this first official WHO collaborating center just in 2021. And what about this GDI hub? Ever heard of that? It was started in 2016. It's housed by the University College London Computer Science Department in the UK. It has a presence in 41 countries with a mandate of bringing solutions and expertise to the disability innovation space. Now, if you've never heard of some of these disability innovation things happening around the globe, well, you're not alone, I think. See what we're getting at here? Disability innovations happening around the globe but is it truly happening globally? And that's the question we're exploring with our three guests on this episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. Joining us for this conversation on the disability innovation state of things are Professor Yuta Trivrianis, Valerie Wafer, and Christine Hemphill. Yuta is the founder and director of the Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University in Toronto. And Valerie Wafer is the chair of the Rotary International Global Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Task Force, also was Rotary International Director 2020 to 2022, and Rotary International Vice President from 2021 to 2022. And from across the pond, Christine Hemphill is the founder and managing director of Open Inclusion, based in London, UK. Open Inclusion is a global research agency. They address disability inclusion through the lens of deeper authentic insights and inclusive design and innovation. So Yuta, Valerie, and Christine, welcome to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D, and thanks for coming on the show to share your insights on this topic. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot today, which is the wonderful part of these podcasts. Thank you so much. And it's such a, a pleasure to be here with such a great uh, group of people and on a topic that is one very, very near and dear to our heart. 
Well, then, since it's very near and dear to your heart, this is wonderful. So let's get right into it with that overarching question that we're going to start exploring. So this question is open to all of you. Uh, anybody can jump in to start the conversation. And what we're wondering is how you would describe the global state of disability inclusion. So is it truly global? Or is it, as we were saying in the intro, happening around the world, but not global in that broad collaborative and collective sense of the word? And I'll dive right, right in um, because we've been given, giving this quite a bit of thought. I think the there is a burgeoning field of accessibility and inclusive design, but it and there are there's legislation to support that, um, and there is education to support that. But I think it's very North America Euro, Eurocentric. Um, for example, the in order for someone to get access to a variety of systems, whether it's the web, the internet, um, all of those digital technologies that are emerging. The assumption is that you use assistive technologies, these separate devices. Um, and when you actually look at it from a global sense, they're not sold in most countries in the world. They are not maintained. You can't get training uh, with respect to them. And even if they are available, they, they may cost about one half of your annual salary. So the, the type of regulatory supports that we have for inclusion are not really taking into account what is the reality within most countries. So I would say it isn't really global. It's wonderful to hear startups in terms of assistive technologies in, in countries that are not within Europe or North America. But um, there, I, I have much more to say about how viable that actually is when we talk about the segregation or integration of things. But uh, I, I'll uh, leave it to Valerie and Christine to comment as well. Yeah, and I would totally agree, uh, agree with Utah. I mean, we find that through the Rotary world as we travel, that it, what is available in, in the developing nations is certainly not available um, in other places of the world. But, but legislative policies um, are important and, and strategies, but again, the outcomes in some of these areas do remain poor. Where what I've found traveling with Rotary is that the developing nations quite often have more advanced attitudes yeah. towards the disabled or marginalized communities. And I'll just share an example with you that um, recently I was in Pakistan where there is a vocational focus on computer training program and cybersecurity for women and people with disabilities. And the culture uh, in this country, not only around women uh, in the workforce, but accommodation for people with disabilities make it impossible for opportunities to work outside the home. And so this inclusion um, of looking at training to bridge that cultural and accessibility issue um, in this country and allowing work to be done from home as freelance workers in this critical uh, area um, because there was a shortfall in this job market but also in the economy so a local solution was found a solution that empowers and provides dignity to families and what I found is I kind of thought about this question and really looked at my experience was that disability inclusion, um, often the needs drive the outcomes, not legislation. And so it's happening around the world, but really it's not happening in a collaborative sense. 
Valerie, I can easily pick up on that. It's a lovely segue because I think that needs drives outcomes. Innovation is happening globally. Absolutely. But it's mainly Jugad innovation that is contextually relevant, frugal and done in a space for a need that is known well to the people designing it for the people very close either that they're designing for themselves they're designing very close to themselves and actually there is so much innovation happening across the disability community globally but it's not a global innovation system in that there's not sharing across the globe and in fact we have a program at the moment um, which is the simply open awards looking to capture those ideas that are just homegrown, elegant, simple solutions that can be transferred from one person to another without needing funding and VCs and commercial solutions bought, sold, known about, that can just be transferred easily across people with similar barriers and similar contexts of use. And I think as Jutta was talking about, the contexts of use are so different globally, whether we're talking about digital context, do they have pervasive 5G, or, you know, is the very spotty plug-in or what, you know, uh, access to data and, and big data um, poverty in that area? Do they have pavements or not have pavements? You know, whether it's physical or digital or even social, as you're talking about, Valerie, there's such different contexts in different spaces. There is a lot of innovation, but that innovation is not necessarily transferable. What it is, is wonderfully rehackable. And that's what we're seeing if we can share the solutions that are bubbling up bottom up across the globe, we can find ways of making them increasingly contextually relevant to elsewhere by sharing some of those insights and yeah, really, let's say, ele elegant, better ways of solving for, for the challenges there. Can I say some more in terms of the uh, the different contexts? Because one of the things with globalization of digital systems, which are largely uh, developed in one uh, powerful area and then distributed around the world, the that takes away that adaptability to some extent. And then if there's assumptions imposed about what uh, it, uh, it also is not hackable. You were talking about, is it hackable? Is it adaptable? Can somebody do user continued design and, and adapt it to their uh, language, local context? Um, the more that globalization happens uh, with respect to the systems that we're using to communicate to uh, like the digitization of, of everything that we depend upon, it becomes harder and harder to actually localize and adapt and to make it work for the situation that we're in. Um, disability is basically diversity, right? Designing for diversity. And the, the innovation that comes from disability is something that will benefit not just individuals uh, with disabilities, but also the various, the, the huge variety of contexts and settings that people experience. And Jutta, just to kind of pick up on that, I think there's, that's the difference between the adaptive assistive technology world, which is for people with disabilities specifically to overcome very particular barriers within their environment and that adaptive and universal mainstream design made right for more humans in more contexts with more characteristics and at the moment it feels like you know to your point before dean 
it feels like it's a little bit white, Western, wealthy, you know, per pervasive digital access, etc. in that universal design that is being more considerate of human diversity, particularly functional diversity. But we also need to be considerate of that cultural and contextual diversity okay. and how well that might flow across different parts of the globe or not. When I was doing some some research for this episode, I came across a, a blog post by Natalie Burden, and she's the founder and CEO of an Australian firm uh, called Briometrics, and they make fitness and mapping apps technology for wheelchair users. And she said in this blog post that disability innovation projects are often siloed and disconnected. And I know, Yuta, when we talked on the phone before the show, you kind of mentioned the same thing that things are happening in, in, in silos. Why are things so siloed and what are those different silos that are out there? Well, so not to be redundant, but um, disability is hugely diverse. It is the extreme expression of human diversity. And disability is at the margins of every other justice deserving group. So the primary common trait is different from the norm. And all of our conventions, meaning like our societal civilization conventions and our general mindset as a society act to reduce diversity and ignore that complexity. Schools create standardized learners ranked on a single scale. Uh, employers create standardized um, or employers seek replaceable workers. Uh, so again, uniformity, standardization. Markets look for the largest, most homogenous customer base for economies of scale. Services look to scale by formulaic replication. When a group doesn't comply, we tend to segregate them. We, this segregation deprives the general population of the adaptability and flexibility we all need. And for the segregated group, it means that the services and products they need are more precarious and they don't interoperate with the mainstream, which is a point that's made in that blog. As um, humans, we also like to classify, to put into boxes, form tribes, where commonalities are formalized and celebrated and differences are diminished. And disability is hard to box. Many people fall through the cracks or are stranded at the edges of the categories that we tend to create. And whenever we create these inclusion um, categories or exclusion criteria, we further exclude people who are already marginalized. Uh, and to the topic of um, innovation, the greatest innovation is found at the margins of our human scatter plot. It isn't from the complacent or well-served middle. Most things are not designed for people with disabilities and people with disabilities occupy that unexplored terrain of design needs and knowledge. Um, innovation that encompasses this territory will provide greater adaptability, as Christine was saying, for our society to, to address the next crisis to come. But the human inclination and the way that we are basically sorting the world or dealing with the world uh, causes us to clump together in these uh, homogenous groupings. Um, we are basically uh, socialized to fear and to reduce the diversity and deny the complexity of 
of the, the things that we're encountering. And that was a very theoretical high level uh, answer to your question. But I think it, it applies to so many things, whether it's our, the way we do things socially, the way we market things, the way that we approach education, education um, or uh, employment, uh, et cetera. I'm going to jump in here, Dean, and I, I promised that I wasn't going to do that, but I'm going to because two two things just happened for me. One, um, I think we just found the title of a very interesting new blog post about innovation being found at the margins of our scatter plot. Um, I, I absolutely love that, but also just this this uh, way that you're framing this question around why things could be so siloed, and yeah, that was like a it was such an interesting answer and I'm, I'm interested to hear what Valerie and Christine are, what's resonating with them when you talk about, um, you know, two main statements that you made there about just, and it's not redundant because we say it all the time and it's not redundant. Disability is diverse. It is diverse and you're bringing um, a, a lens of, of, exploring that concept of disability being diverse in wherein you're saying our, our systems and in our culture, our processes, our policies, our legislation, our worlds are designed around uniformity and striving for uniformity and anything that is an outlier then, you know, is pushed to the margins and becomes the outlier of that scatter plot. So I'm really interested in picking up and seeing where Christine and Valerie, where that was resonating for them as well. Well, thanks, Jeanette. I was listening intently to Yuda's response as well. And when I said at the beginning, when I said hello to this podcast, I said I was going to learn something. Um, and I always do. Um, and I don't work in this space uh, as, as Christine and, and Yuta probably do. So again, I probably come at this from a very different perspective, but I love what we just picked up on that disability is, is diverse. And we know that disability is such a broad spectrum. And, uh, you know, in, even in my business, as I was a Tim Horton franchisee for 25 years and our company was known for hiring people with disability, it is a broad spectrum and the innovation and perspectives that people with disabilities bring every day to the workforce and to their life is incredible. And that's where the innovation lies. But it's also true that we tend to, we tend to hang out with the people who are like us, right? And so um, when that's the case, we're just looking at ourselves in the mirror. We're hearing that echo chamber of everything that we believe in and have been taught to believe in and not opening up our perspectives to those around us. And that's where the beauty of inclusion comes from. And that's where the beauty of getting out of these outreaches or these, these edges of these spectrums and joining together, that's where that's where the beauty is going to happen. And that's where we're going to move society um, and get out of those silos. Is it easy to do? No, because our natural tendency is to stay where we're comfortable. So um, I, I, I loved you to answer and uh, got a lot of great takeaways already. So thank you. Uh, Valerie, I totally agree. And in fact, Yuta, you were talking about complexity and fear. And in fact, we often talk about the two biggest barriers to inclusion are complexity and fear. And I'd add a third one to that, which is self-knowledge. Complexity, fear, and self-knowledge. And that self-knowledge is a really interesting one because that goes to the point you're making, Valerie, around our normal is us. Whatever us is, including 
those of us that identify as disabilities, those of us that don't. So normal kind of starts, we've got a, a fridge magnet literally on our fridge that says, remember, as far as anyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. It's a joke. We don't have a single neurotypical person within our family. And, and anyway, we live in a place where we don't have the same language and so on. So that point of normality, but also what usually what you were talking about in terms of the normality of how design is done, how our standard practices of society are run. And I often say you know, research has an inclusion problem, therefore design has an exclusion problem. We actually have a design problem, which is we design quite exclusively in so many ways, and we can talk to all of those. But actually, I take it one step back up the chain and say the reason we design so poorly and our design practices are built around such a small, in fact, minority group of society of those with no marginalised you know, characteristics at all, that that's because we're not researching in an inclusive way. We're not listening broadly. And I absolutely, you know, I, I'm one of the uh, early students of Futa in that the innovation happens at the edges. And that's where we see if you want to make something that is remarkably more valuable, you start by looking remarkably differently. You don't do the same as everyone else. You don't go looking in the same place with the same technology, with the same tools and just try and eke out your know, 1% more. That's just design improvement. That's just enhancement. If you want to innovate, you need to look differently. And there is a whole enormous community of human diversity that is under looked at, under designed for, under innovated for. And there is so much opportunity there. And we just need to change our practices of looking and designing. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with your research has an inclusion problem, because certainly within academia, we are the, the gold standard is statistical significance. So much of what is said, like all women or men tend to, etc. If you're an outlier, or uh, if you are at those margins, that is wrong for you. So these statistically determined um, bits of knowledge about humanity or um, any part of humanity tend to be either completely inaccurate or wrong um, if you are out there. So it's, it, uh, it's at the core of what we see as evidence, truth, knowledge that we are excluding and denying that diversity as well. Uh, and that, that I think is to our detriment as a society because um, that uh, creates these areas that we're not paying attention to and that uh, makes us less adaptable and less prepared for the unexpected or the next crisis. All of these great insights about, you know, being trapped in echo chambers and designing, you know, the, the outliers and, and under-designing for, you know, the group that, that should be designed for. In addition to all of this, and you know, all of this echo chamber and siloing, Natalie Verdon was saying in that 2020 post that investors, and she talked about it like angel investors who fund startups, you know, she said they're missing the boat on disability innovation because, because disability is not considered a sexy sector. And I'm, I'm quoting her words there in, in her post. And she also said that innovative thinkers really struggle with the concept of disability. So 
what are the ram? I mean, if you take all of these things together, what are the ramifications of all of these things together on global disability innovation? Christine, what do you think? Yeah, I'm happy to jump in to start with that one and, and then pass to my colleagues here. Innovative thinkers live at the margins. There are beautifully innovative thinkers that understand the unmet needs deeply and personally at the margins. The money is not going to where the innovative thinkers are. So it's not that there's not innovative thinkers at the margins, and equally it's not that there's not huge, unmet and very valuable, commercially viable needs to be met with innovative solutions. It's that the money's not going to the margins, and that comes to discrimination and stigma and bias and all sorts of incomplexity and understanding and also and and actually an insight. Because again, if you have sets of data and evidence, and I loved your three comments of evidence, truth and knowledge, Jutta, because if your evidence, truth and knowledge are incomplete and therefore inaccurate because the way we're even engaging with people today is excluding people with disabilities from being able to provide their truth, their evidence and their knowledge into these data sets. Therefore, that's not even understood by VCs going, well, where's the market? And the whole there's a whole practice around and it's, it was probably really enhanced with digital design, you know, the generation of digital designers, I suppose I grew up in where that minimum viable product and move fast and break things, that methodology that became acceptable innovation practice has really hurt society. And you know, we talk about minimum valuable or minimum lovable products. And even when you're doing a minimum lovable product, you've got to think about what's the exclusion footprint that product is going to leave behind. So not just the positive that you're putting in, but the negative you're leaving there and what that is. We've seen a huge um, progression of understanding and maturing of practices and in fact, including investment practices around environmental sustainability. We haven't seen the same thing yet happen around social sustainability. And even within social sustainability, I think disability is a, a poorer and, and lesser considered cousin of the other areas of marginalized consideration. So there is a need, there is value, there are practices, everything's kind of sitting there like a jigsaw puzzle waiting to come down together. But we need some changed practices and some people to really understand and start putting that together for that value to align and for that full kind of ecosystem of capability to connect. And we are seeing some early, you know, I'm, I'm the classic optimist, anyone who's heard me speak, you know, I'm always the glass half full and I see there are VCs like Enable Ventures, there are organisations like GDI Hub, there are social investors that are beginning to realise this is actually where significantly differentiated outcomes can happen. So it's early, we're not there yet, we're not even close to being there yet. Um, but I think we've got the pieces we need to put them together. And one of those key pieces that needs to come together is the funding. Yeah, well, we need to innovate in uh, the way that we consider the economic modeling of those startups, those investors, et cetera. The, the notion of scaling, which gets back to our adaptability is 
a winning formula that is then formulaically replicated wherever, when in fact, the world is very different. Um, the, the idea of the 80-20 rule that you uh, design first for the 80% that require 20% of the effort, and then you get the quick wins and ignore the 20% that take up 80% of the effort, when in fact it's those 20% that take up 80% of the effort that have the, the greatest innovation. Um, the, the ignoring of the full social costing, as we say, of the design that you're using. Um, the uh, we've we've actually done some uh, research to show that if you consider the full spectrum of requirements right from the beginning and integrate them into the system, you're going to save money um, in the three to five year term. Uh, you may spend a little bit more time and money at the beginning, but the longevity of whatever you're creating is going to be far better. If you only think about the the homogenous standardized middle, then your system is going to become very brittle very quickly because people won't understand it. You will have to patch on all these things and it, it won't uh, last and it'll uh, the end of life of whatever product you're creating will happen fairly quickly. And I, I'll take this in a little bit of a different direction because I agree that investors are missing the boat on disability innovation but disability is good for business, full stop. And so whether it's a startup or it's an existing business, those business owners, corporate executives that do not understand the, the business case of hiring people with disabilities and how that will contribute to their innovation within their company, to the different perspectives that it'll bring, to the retention of their employees, to uh, Everything that they do, the different perspectives around the board table, um, that is where we are really missing out. We are facing a huge labor shortage, certainly in North America, and we really need to consider people with disabilities and everything that they bring to the table. It's really interesting, you know, um, working in this space for many years and hiring people with disabilities, we obviously recognize the benefits of, of this. Um, but the interesting thing is when we shared this story with other business owners, we quite often hear from them, oh, we don't need to be accessible. We don't need to consider um, hiring people with disabilities or worrying about customers or having ramps or being accessible from a physical plant point of view because our customers don't have disabilities. And it just absolutely blows my mind when people say that because it's maybe not the, the sexy thing to invest in, but not understanding the outcomes and the benefits, not only to society, but to your business, to employment, to our economies, to dignity, to respect, that's where it all lies. And so I do agree that investors, whether it's startups or current business owners are missing the boat on the value of including people with disabilities and what that means. Oh. Just add a, a bit of practical um, or you know, specific uh, thought to that, which is actually we are seeing the leading commercial organisations get this. So there are organisations that are understanding this. And actually what I find very exciting about this moment in time is we are seeing leading commercial organisations come to us saying, how might we make our product, our service, our environment more 
you know, more usable, more consistently, more delightful, not just more accessible so that we don't get in trouble, but actually more valuable to a broader range of customers. Now, what's interesting about that is that's what the leaders are doing. They are going to be the ones that get the commercial advantage of leadership. There will then be the fast followers. They're the ones that are going to survive. They will work it out. They will scramble along. They will chase along after. They will survive. And then, then there will be those that are still there going, huh, is there something I'm missing here? I'm really not sure that we need to. I think our practices of the early noughties of designing for that 80% and, and worrying about the 20% after are still okay. They're the ones that won't survive. And actually, I'm quite a believer in we have already seen that change happen. That is already in society. There are large commercial, you know, very astute organizations that now have an inclusion first strategy, understanding what that's bringing to their products, their services, environments, exactly as Yuta was saying, for that product sustainability and value sustainability and robustness. So it's getting there but it's very uneven yeah and i think we need to change our hr practices as well i mean the society as a whole has decided that the way that we consider work the way we hire the way we employ how we use humans as the the mechanism for sustaining businesses is doesn't work and by looking at how can we design it for the edge? I think that is where we're going to find the most sustainable method uh, or the most sustainable way of thinking about humans and work. One of the, I, I do agree with you, Christine, that there are large companies that are have started to learn this lesson. The one thing that I fear is that um, we're now implementing many artificial intelligence systems for hiring. So 90% of organizations are using some form of AI to screen applications, whether it's the video interview screening or, you know, you have a thousand applications, you pick the 10 that, that you're going to interview. And unfortunately, we've created those artificial intelligence systems in a way to replicate um, they are like a power tool to do what we did before more efficiently. And so they're automating, amplifying, and accelerating those patterns of the past. So while we, we may have some people that are beginning to understand the, the benefits, we've created these power tools that are, in fact, entrenching and making worse and speeding us in the wrong direction. Um, I, I think that they're... Um, hopefully will be some sort of realization, whoa, you know what? We don't want to go in that direction, not for, for the general population, but also definitely not for people with disabilities. And I think, you know, Judah and Christine and Valerie, you're bringing up a really interesting um, sort of points around this business case side of things and just how both how, um, how large, that conversation is and yet how small it's it can be when it's when you see it on the ground and this idea of like yeah we are you know christine to your point we're we're 
we're at this new spot all of a sudden. I don't know what else to call it. We're, I'm not going to keep using scatterplot. Um, so but we're right on the edge again of something where we have organizations like the Valuable 500 uh, that's operating globally. And, you know, the 500 top global companies in the world are, are, are signing on with these pledges to be an inclusive business. In Canada, we have um, the President's Club, and it's the top 25 uh, CEOs or of, of the top 25 uh, companies, Canadian-based companies that are, that are signing on to these things. And so there are there's these conversations that are happening at these very high, high levels and on a global landscape. And um, but then, you know, to Valerie's point, there's this when you actually get into it and start having conversations at the at the franchise level. So while the global company might be supporting it at the factory level, the franchise level, the direct service level, office level, what is being translated out of those initiatives? How is that information being transferred? That knowledge being transferred down um, to get people to understand that the team that you build uh, in your, you know, every we're, we're in Ontario. So in everyday Ontario town, um, the team that you're building there to deliver on this global product, if you're not practicing and understanding and grasping the value behind the inclusion of have teammates, coworkers, leaders who have a disability, you're automatically self-selecting yourself out of the innovation path. And I think that that's what's really interesting is watching the, the transition from this high-level C-suite directive. Mm -hmm. How is this actually being practiced on the ground? And that kind of leads me to a question around what are examples? Because I mean, I sit inside the space a bit, so I can think of some of these things, but I'm thinking for people who are listening to this that might be saying, okay, back it up for a second. What, what are you actually talking about when you talk about innovation happening around the world? What, like, can, can you give us an example or two of what you're, what it is, what you've actually witnessed, um, what you're aware of that would be considered this type of innovation? And this is, you know, open to Anyone can start. But it's everywhere. It's everywhere. I, mean, I would say. So like, okay, just if you were to travel through a room and look at the things that have emerged, that have changed our society, we can go quite far back. Um, I'll, I'm looking right now at a keyboard or a typewriter. Um, that The typewriter, the keyboard that you're using on your computer was initially thought of by someone who um, wanted to build something for a blind countess to be able to uh, communicate with them uh, because her handwriting wasn't very legible, but they, they wanted the, the communications to be legible. Um, amplifiers, microphones, loudspeakers merged because people needed innovations for people who are deaf. Email, text messaging, the way that we've, that, that was done by Vince Cerf communicating with his wife who was deaf. Captioning, uh, uh, speech recognition was uh, done for people who could, I mean, these these were all in innovations that emerge. Optical character recognition, the web, ebooks. I mean, everything we're using here came out, was motivated 
was um, came about because somebody thought, here's a challenge. We need to figure out how this person can participate. And those are all individuals that had disabilities that brought these things about. Um, so it was people motivated by designing for people who currently did not have access, who needed some alternative form, who needed a more adaptive system. But I'm sure that, that Christine and, and Valerie can give more examples as well. Well, Yuta, you've done a beautiful job of kind of looking back and reminding us that so much assistive technology has become mainstream solutions that we all use, love and appreciate every single day without necessarily knowing the heritage sitting behind them. I'd actually take today and look forward and you've talked about AI and you've talked about these power tools coming at us potentially the risk of them coming at us without consideration of human variation. And there is so much risk in that, that there is also huge power in using these tools to solve current issues that human diversity give us that we haven't solved well today. So if we you know, stand now and look forward, in fact, last time you and I were catching up was future of the interface, which is thinking about you know, future user interfaces voice UI is right on that edge of becoming incredibly powerful and easy to use. And in fact, we were doing a project with Microsoft's AI for accessibility last year, thinking about how voice UI could help job seekers go through the, the searching and applying for jobs process more efficiently, you know, particularly for those with different access needs. Um, but that's helpful for everyone. You know, it's just that's a really specific need that's very difficult for some people today that will push the innovation forward and then benefit everyone in the future. And we're already all using our voice assistants today that, of course, came from assistive tech in the past. Collaborative engagement tools that are allowing us to work in very different ways now, actually particularly to pre-COVID, and now trying to progress those tools to make sure that they are more inclusive of human difference. And you know, we were, you were mentioning captioning, and we've really seen a trans, you know, transition from pre-captioning to captioned dynamic content using um, tools that are getting better and better. And actually that will end up benefiting people across languages. It'll end up benefiting people, you know, whether it's gestural languages, you know, sign languages, um, and also you know, across different, um, uh, di different spoken languages. Immersive technologies that can be very exclusive but could be very inclusive depending on how they're designed right now. Enhanced sound, hearables. You know, a, a decade ago it wasn't normal for people to walk around with things hanging out of their ears. Now we do, it's become so mainstream that's allowed a whole integrated, very socially expect, accepted enhanced hearing approach for those of us that need it. Enhanced sight, you know, rather than reading that two-point font that we all hate when we're looking for, does this have gluten in it or what have you on packaging, we can now put technology on our packaging and we can have enhanced sight that can work for people with sight loss but can help us all find the bits that are relevant. So everywhere I look, and Jeanette, to your comment, it's like, we're in this incredibly both exciting and terrifying space between places. We've come from a place that had a way of working behaviors, systems, approaches, tools, and technologies 
that have got us to here but won't get us beyond. They are not sufficient and neither are they the tools and technologies that have arrived with us now. We have this new power that's come at us. We have systems and social engagement and so on that we know we want to go move forward. But how might we take this and move it forward in the most positive way? And I'm absolutely, obviously, from where I come from, start at the edges and look at where those needs are and really inform the development of these very powerful power that's coming at us. But inform it first with diversity. Don't leave that till last, because then the innovation of today will actually create the inclusion or exclusion of tomorrow in a more positive way rather than a negative way, which is you know, equally possible given where, where we are right now. Yeah, I, I love your points, Christine. The the one thing that I would say is that there are often for some of these new systems, uh, disability and inclusion is used as a way of justifying something. But then, um, what what um, so a, a technology that might be exclusive is is what I'm talking about. Uh, what we find is that uh, the way that they're currently designed is not actually to the edge. And so the individuals with disabilities that require them the most are the ones that, that they work the worst for. So if my voice is far from the average voice, then I'm not going to be able to use the voice recognition. If the environment that I'm living in isn't like the uh, very well-to-do Western environment where a pattern recognition system was trained so that somebody could, uh, so the system could recognize, you know, is this the women's or the men's washroom or what is the packaging that I'm holding in front of me? Um, it isn't going to, to work for me. So even in those, amazing emerging systems, uh, we need to think about uh, designing to the edge and, and thinking about how far um, and how adaptable have we come. The way we tend to determine whether something's accessible or whether it has had impact is uh, through numbers. And, you know, is there, has this benefited the largest group of, of users, homogenous users? Uh, and so we need to, even in those notions of success and the notions of whether we've had impact, we need to think about, have we actually addressed or how far out to the this scatter plot of human needs have we gone with the system rather than how many numbers of homogenous individuals are we benefiting? And I think the only thing that I will add to this amazing and fascinating conversation <laughs> is is, is the, the social aspect of everything that we're sitting here talking about and how even the world we live in today and COVID-19 was mentioned, how that's changed everything around us, provided new tools or, or, or simply adapted existing tools to be more inclusive. Um, but I also think that there's an environment emerging where people with disabilities are feeling empowered and are feeling justified and and um, asking for accommodations, you know, not feeling the social stigma of speaking up that they need an accommodation or they need this adaptive technology to be further uh, developed for for their their needs and including their voices in 
in these conversations, in these innovative products around the board table and being part of the solution. And uh, I, I've, I've really realized that I think in the last couple of years, there is more of that social aspect of inclusion and providing those equitable tools so that everybody has a chance to be a leader and to participate in everything in society. So thank you for the opportunity to build on those uh, amazing observations. And Valerie, I think in addition to the equity that comes with thinking about disability inclusive workplaces, it's also recognizing as, as we were talking about disability informed perspectives to really identify the most powerful um, innovations and designs. It's also disability informed perspectives that will inform a much more powerful workplace and a much more considerate and consistently delightful product service or environment, whether you're it's a citizen service or a commercial one. So recognizing the advantage, not the disadvantage that disability informed perspectives bring to a workplace. And in fact, you know, more broadly informed perspectives in many characteristics would bring to workplaces. And you know, Yuta was talking about you know the, the quite homogenous workplaces and schools. And in fact, the schools create the workplaces. So really thinking about why are we missing out on this diversity of perspective that we know, and there is huge amount of data and evidence to say that is going to inform a better work workplace and work outcomes. So how do we really take a step back, challenge the way that whole system is feeding into that to, uh, to improve that? Um, one other po point just on the to the edges that you, two, you were making before, I think collaboration has a real part to play here too, and we haven't spoken about that. No one can quite get to the edges and to all the edges by themselves, but if we collaborate better across organisations and if we collaborate better between those working on similar solutions but in the non-commercially sensitive pieces, I think there is so much more we can do much more efficiently. And in fact, Project Euphonia, the, when we we're talking about voice UI, a lot of the large technology organizations are actually sharing research around divergent speech patterns in order to make voice UI more powerful and more consistently usable for more people. And that's a great example of how collaborative you know, practices can reduce the cost and the load on everyone, but allow us to really get out right to those edges that are going to be most valuable, but most valuably supported by the technologies that could come in the future. And uh, can I add a note about accommodation? Wouldn't it be great if we could uh, retire accommodation so that you don't need to ask for a special accommodation, that it is available to everyone and that gives everyone room um, to change, to uh, deal with the unexpected. Well, and I think, you know, that, oh, sorry, go ahead, Valerie. I was just going to say, you know, one of the things that I've really learned in uh, building a team of people with disabilities is that we do always, quite often we assume what a person needs as far as accommodation. And then we've talked a lot about the broad spectrum of disability. And one of the things we learned quite quickly was to really sit down and have a conversation with the person to ask what they need to be able to succeed. And sometimes that was at absolutely no cost. I want to really make it clear that a broad spectrum of accommodation isn't always the way to go. And I love that comment on don't have to ask for accommodations, but just have 
different ways of engaging effectively and efficiently in the workforce, in the workplace available to you, because for all the humans are incredibly diverse, actually the barriers are not that diverse. And we can design out the barriers that might impact many people for many different reasons. So understanding whether they're digital barriers, whether they're social barriers, whether the way we're engaging or the built environment, we can think about barrier by barrier where people might need some adaptation op options and understanding whether you're just designing it for everyone and designing something that is more universally acceptable and enjoyable to everyone or whether you're offering people alternatives. Once you're grounded in the barriers rather than the individuals, there's actually a lot less variance there. Or in the adaptability and flexibility and choice and as you say, then people can contribute and add, and it doesn't need to be born by just one uh, individual. And I think, you know, that really speaks to this, the relationship between innovation and inclusion. And so when I hear and reflect on what Valerie was just talking about around, you know, when you're, when you're in a place of business, and this applies to businesses, schools, major institutions, public spaces, uh, you know, and anywhere and everywhere where humans are interacting, sometimes the best approach and really the only approach is, you know, engaging in those conversations and finding out, you know, asking a person if there's anything that they need. And that does start to move the conversation away from, you know, I need to fill out a form and declare that I require these accommodations and then I'm going to be offered a shopping list of, you know, products and and innovations in quote marks that are supposed to be supporting and helping me. But then to your point, a lot of, you know, Christine, I think it was you that said a lot of these things are designed then not with inclusion in mind, it's it's to to meet a simple single need and isn't necessarily applicable. And I think one of the statements that you made about the innovation of today can be the exclusion of tomorrow is is a very cautionary thing to think about as we as we look at the relationship between innovation and so you know we've been talking about innovation in the disability landscape but then also talking about inclusion from a disability lens and just how independent those both are and and how much influence in either a positive or a negative way that innovation can have and i think you know as we i mean i'm really sad to say that we're going to have to start to wrap up this conversation because I would love for this to go on and on. Maybe we all take this offline. Um, but uh, but when, you know, when we think about the, the conversation that was just had and, and the things that were just unpacked, what do you think needs to happen um, to, to sort of encourage this move away from innovation being in these silos, being maybe need-specific um, or, you know, back to one of the very early comments about that Eurocentric or North American perspective, like what do we need to do to, to expand these innovations to make it a, a global collective collaborative effort so that it is going to be accessible and usable no matter where you are on the globe. Valerie? I'll start off. That is the big question, Jeanette. I'm, that is the, the, the whole culmination of this whole conversation is where do we go and how do we change things? 
And, you know, I, I just think we keep moving forward. We continue to integrate and include people with disabilities in all aspects of society and business. We need to educate and bring awareness to equity and include people with disabilities in the development of all policy and structures that we've been talking about or that we need going forward. Have let, let each of us have a voice at the table, whether it's a person with a disability, whether it's a marginalized community, whoever it may be, we're only stronger when we each are able to bring our perspectives. That leads to innovation, it leads to equity, it leads to moving our society in the direction it needs to go in, whether it's corporate, government, um, you know, we need to teach the next generation. We need to make them feel comfortable. Sometimes we talk about these culture changes taking a generation to occur. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to make sure that we are creating that society where people with disabilities um, are included in all aspects. That it's not, you know, these silos that we naturally gravitate to and that we look to, to join together and, um, it's a big question. It's a big ask, but I just think it all starts with education and conversation. I agree with Valerie. Um, I think that the mindset shift that's needed is also the key to the survival of, of the human race. And that seems like a very, very big statement, but uh, we, we need to do this. Uh, diversity is our greatest asset, as we say, and inclusion is our greatest change. And we've been wasting and actually fighting against that diversity, which is the asset that we need to be able to adapt to the unexpected, unpredictable things that are coming. Um, you were mentioning the pandemic before, and there during the pandemic, there was this troubling rise of of social Darwinism, like uh, let the uh, where it was the survival of the fittest type of mentality, and several governments were even voicing that. But we need to stop demonizing vulnerability and fragility and value the perspectives brought about by people who are vulnerable and fragile. When our designs are guided by them, those designs will work for us when we find ourselves vulnerable and fragile. And believe me, given what we've done to the world at the moment, we are all going to experience those periods of vulnerability and fragility. And it would be great if we had systems that would sustain us and that would work for us uh, when, when we do ultimately experience that. I think it's a really interesting point and it's that, you know, you're talking to it, Valerie, in that include, you know, inclusion and diversity. I, I'm waiting for the time that we move away from the inclusive enabled and we start recognizing that it's inclusive empowered. Yeah. You know, rather than going from minus one to zero, when do we start realizing that this will take us from zero to plus? And that reality is already there for those of us that work in innovation, that are informed by those at the edges, that have that experience, that have that knowledge of fragility, that have that knowledge of exclusion. And there's, there's a transformation yet to happen in society. Those that recognize that, there is so much power there that that is just sitting there as latent energy for us to just pick up and use and transform ourselves going forward. Very practically for someone listening to this today, what can you do? You can start where you are and you can start asking some really simple questions. What's the exclusion footprint I might be leaving behind in the work I'm doing, in the way I'm working? 
in the questions I'm asking and the people I'm asking them of, in the things I'm considering and the ways I'm making decisions as to what might be in or what might be out of that consideration set or what might get selected or not selected in what comes from that. So I think listening, selecting, doing, delivering and learning from that, that cycle, if you just, we're all working in that cycle somewhere. Just ask yourself, what am I doing today that might create an exclusion cost, a footprint of the work I'm doing? And equally, what am I doing today that might be positively and very productively informed by going to the edges and understanding more diverse experiences than those that are in the room today? The only, the last thing I'll leave us on is disability, where we started actually, go right back to the very beginning of this conversation. Disability is beautifully and wonderfully diverse. So having one person in your team or someone who you, know, you yourself have lived experience of disability cannot possibly represent the 1.3 billion people on the planet living with disability. So really um, not putting the weight of inclusion on a small number of people that might be sitting within an organization today, recognizing that understanding of exclusion can be really important and really help empower an organization that in looking to constantly reinform and relearn beyond the starting experience that you have. That's just as true of innovators who themselves have a disability learning the broader market around them. Those that are, you know, in the team creating things with or without a disability and those that are then informing that, you know, empower rather than just ask for people to kind of contribute and sit down and have a town hall and great, you can tick the box, we've had disabled people involved. Actually really think about how you can empower that conversation to inform the decisions, not just the inputs. So there's just so much in that constantly learning a little bit more, not getting overwhelmed by that complexity, but constantly asking what can I do today that's gonna to take me one step further forward rather than further back. I am still trying to process all of this great conversation. I mean, we've just covered so much. And Valerie, you came in saying, you know, you you were looking forward to learning a lot of new things. And I think we've all learned from each other in this. And we've talked about so much. Have we covered all the essentials? Is there anything we haven't talked about in this conversation that you think is important to mention before we go? I'll just build on what Christine says, and that is I am positive and I am um, excited about where these conversations are going. And, you know, if I can just share our work in Rotary International and the embarking on diversity, equity and inclusion with 1.4 million global members around the world, this conversation is resonating. People want to feel valued. People want to be able to show up as their true authentic selves and contribute in with everything that they've got. And I can tell you that if it's an example of, of the culture around the world, that this is what we are hungry for. This is where our society go, needs to go. Maybe it's a self-correction. Maybe it was some of the stuff we experienced during COVID that really didn't bring out the best in a lot of people. Maybe this is the correction we've been looking for. But I, I'm really hopeful and I'm really positive about these, this conversation around people with disabilities and innovation and it's just equity and inclusion around the world and, uh, and just the social aspect of, of who we are and where we're going. 
Christine and Yuta, final thoughts? Um, yeah, I would, I'm going to echo Christine's uh, words in, or perhaps state them in a different way. I've been constantly asking, who are we missing um, within, who have we not actually considered? And the, the other um, aspect I would say is that we have to rethink our notions of success and completion. We talk about uh, this because this is a changing world. Our world is constantly changing. So there is no completion point. We talk about um, the beauty of the imperfect, impermanent, and incomplete. Um, and that is, that is um, I think, what our life is going to look like in the, the foreseeable future. And uh, the mindset that addresses that uh, is something that is going to also prepare us better for the, the various unexpected and unpredictable things to come. I love that. And I think if there's, you know, the one leaving, you know, parting thought I would leave with is we can learn and that's critically important. We've talked about education a lot, but actually we need to unlearn in order to make space for new learning. And that goes back to that. We're in this space between places. And what has got us to here will not take us further forward without very significant compromises that we probably don't want to make. So that's going to take some unlearning and that takes humility. That takes knowing what we're not and knowing that all those things that we've built up around ourselves to give us a sense of confidence and a sense of comfort and a sense of security might need to be challenged. And to kind of lean into that discomfort and in fact embrace it and enjoy it. And there's a lovely quote from Jacqueline Novogratz that I'm going to miss now, but it's essentially to match humility and audacity, that's where innovation lies. And so to embrace that humility of we've got to let stuff go and that means letting go of some of the things that have helped us feel comfortable to hear, but don't give up on the audacity because there is so much opportunity right now and Valerie to your point the world is hungry for it and the youth particularly whenever I get slightly you know below that glass half half full usual Christine self just go and talk to young people coming through the programs today and you can't but be hugely optimistic about where we're going and don't give up on that audacity because we can get there the tools are powerful We've got this moment when we're recognizing that what got us to here is not sufficient. So we've got this moment of pause. Let's do better. And, and you know, that one step at a time, but if we're all taking it, we'll move quite fast. Well, this, this has been a great conversation. And so first, Yuta, uh, Christine and Valerie, thank you again so much for coming on to the show and for this incredible discussion that unfolded that I don't know if any of us expected the conversation to go off into these directions, but it's, it's been, this has been phenomenal. So thank you, all of you. Um, I, I'm going to, you know, we usually at the end of the show, take a, take a minute to sort of wrap up, but you've, you've left, especially in these, these closing comments, some, some things, uh, you know, from everything that you've all, you've all said, what I'm gathering is that there does need to be, we know there needs to be more conversation like this one about disability innovation, about disability inclusion, about 
knowledge sharing and knowledge transfer on a on a local level on a regional level on a national level on a global level um and and that there's a lot of innovation that has happened. So thank you for that historical perspective, but also that there's a lot happening. And one of the comments was that we're in the space between places right now, which can be uncomfortable and scary and exciting. And it is a place of, of innovation naturally. Um, and also just thinking about the fact that, you know, we need to do some unlearning and 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 challenging thinking again on on this global scale. And so Christine, you you did in what I would summarize a call to action. So that one thing for people who are listening uh, is is when you're done listening to this, you're done you're done absorbing the information in in this podcast you're done reading it um pause and ask yourself what is my exclusion footprint and really start challenging yourself to to learn what 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 am I asking myself? What am I challenging myself with? And when I understand what my exclusion footprint is, what do I do to make it smaller and smaller and smaller? Um, so I just, again, thank you so much for that. Dean, I don't, I don't know um, how you want to follow any of this conversation. As you've all said, there, there needs to be more information sharing out there because as we've all talked about, innovating for disability ultimate benefits us all. I mean, you know, I just recently bought some new batteries for my battery powered toothbrush. And I didn't realize that in 1958, the electric toothbrush was invented for people who had limited hand mobility. So let's hope this conversation really does get people thinking about some of those ways you've talked about to change the, the innovation that's happening and in, in isolation in those silos out there. Because I mean, hey, you know, silos are, are, they're meant for storing grain, right? And Dean, you know, on that note, I am going to say that uh, that is it for, for what was a truly global and a really incredible episode of You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D. I'm Jeanette Campbell. And I'm Dean Askin. And thanks for me as well to Yuta, Valerie and Christine for coming on the show and sharing their disability innovation insights globally had to get that one in there and to our listeners thanks again for listening wherever whenever and on whatever podcast app you're listening from join us each episode as we have insightful conversations like this one and explore disability inclusion in business and in our communities from all the angles you can't spell inclusion without a d is produced in toronto canada by the ontario disability employment network all rights reserved our podcast production team Executive producer and host, Jeanette Campbell. Producer, Sue Defoe. Associate producer and host, Dean Askin. Audio editing and production by Dean Askin. Our podcast theme is Last Summer by Ixon. If you have feedback or comments about an episode, contact us at info at odinnetwork.com. That's info at O-D-E-N-E-T-W-O-R-K dot com. Join us each episode for insights from expert guests as we explore the power of inclusion the business benefits of inclusive hiring, and why disability is an important part of the diversity, equity, and inclusion conversation. Listen to You Can't Spell Inclusion Without a D on Podbean 
or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.